We're coming to the end of our series that we've been calling Encounters with God, Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt. And our final episode that we're looking at is here from the book of Revelation with the life of John and how he encountered the risen Christ at the outset of this prophetic book. Uh, next week, we are going to be wrapping up the series by focusing on one verse from the Psalms, and that is Psalm 27, verse 8, that says, When you said, the psalmist is speaking to the Lord, when you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, will I seek. We're focusing on what it means for us to respond to God. This whole time, we've been looking at encounters with God, how God encounters us. What does it mean for us as individuals to have a relationship with God, to respond to God's invitation, uh, to seek His face? But for now, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation and this vision that John, the apostle, has of the risen Christ on the Isle of Patmos. Let's have a word of prayer together and ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds to what he has for us this morning. Our Father, we have been able to confess in our singing that you are the king of all creation, that you are our creator. And we've exhorted ourselves to bow our knees to you. I pray that that would not just be words on our lips, but the true reality in our hearts. That we would in this time realize that we must give you our whole allegiance. I pray that our hearts and minds would be convinced of the truth of your word so that our wills would respond I pray that we would worship you even in the way that we hear your word preached. I pray that you would change our lives. Father, we desperately need to hear from you. And we expect that you will speak because this is your word. You promise that it won't return to you empty. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. I want to read uh, this verse 17 to us. John writes, When I saw him, speaking of Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. And our text here focuses on one of the most common uh, and pervading emotions that we can experience. And that is the emotion of fear. We all know what it is like to feel afraid. We have brought a lot of things into this room with us, uh, a lot of things under the property with us. You've brought your Bible, maybe you're a device that you read your Bible on. Some of you have brought crockpots of chili uh, with you here, hopefully not into the room here. I, I can smell something, but that's coming from the Fellowship Hall, I think. But we've brought things with us. But one thing that I think probably everybody has brought here with them this morning is some sort of fear, something that you're afraid of. The thing that people tend to be most afraid of are two. People that study the human emotions say that people are commonly afraid of two things. One is death. Can you guess the second? Public humiliation. Public shame. That's why some people are so deathly afraid of speaking in public because they're afraid they're going to make a mistake in front of everybody. Not just public shame, but private shame being rejected by people that you love being embarrassed in front of the public eye. So death and shame. And if you think about it, the two are very closely connected. There is something humiliating about death itself. Our decline toward mortality. The unraveling of our bodies. 
the weakness and frailty that we experience. We come into this world and, and we grow and, and shimmering with beauty and then that beauty quickly begins to dissolve into age and there's something very humbling and even shameful that we find about the experience of, of death and our mortality. But there's also something really deathly about shame. Like the death of people's good thoughts about us, the death of prestige and respect, and reputation, and the kind of image that we want to project to other people. We, we greatly fear death and shame. And people have a hard time trying to decide which is worse. In fact, there are some cultures that standardize the practice, ancient cultures in particular, people that will kill themselves before being publicly humiliated in some way or rather lose their lives rather than their honor. You think of the ancient Romans or even the Japanese up until the 20th century. And the Bible, of course, speaks of the fear of death. Hebrews 2.15 tells us that humans are all their lifetime subject to slavery through the fear of death, but we can also overlook the fact that Scripture also does speak about the fear of shame. Do you remember the very first emotion that human beings experienced after the fall? It wasn't anger. It wasn't sorrow. It was fear. When God said, he called out of the Garden of Edom, Adam, where are you? Adam said this, I was afraid. And it wasn't just a fear of death, because he goes on to say, I was afraid because I was naked. He was ashamed. It was a fear of shame. I was naked and I hid myself. The first fear was not a fear of death, but a fear of shame. In our text this morning, we read the words of Jesus to John. He lays his hand, right hand on John and says, fear not. <laughs> I mean, against all the jumbled racket of the fears in our lives, these words ring like a clear bell that we all want to hear. Fear not. Let your fears be banished. Let them be dismissed. I mean, surely here is an encounter with God that we all want to experience. One that can take our fears and send them away. That can melt them like an ice cube on a summer day. This is the sort of encounter that we want for our fears to be completely gone. How does God encounter us? How does he confront us in our fear? Well, to answer this question... One has to walk through the passage beginning in verse 12, and it divides into two parts. First, in verses 12 through 16, John has a vision that inspires fear. And then in verses 17 through 19, he hears a word that removes that fear. Okay, so we're going to look at what causes his fear, and then what conquers fear. What causes his fear, verses 12 through 16, and what conquers his fear verses 17 through 19. So first of all, what causes his fear? And it is a, this vision of the resurrected Christ himself. Now we should keep in mind here 
that whenever a human being has a vision of God, sees, sees God as Isaiah did, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what a human being is seeing is not God in the fullness of his glory because no one could lay eyes on God in the fullness of his glory and, and ever live. God is revealing, he's, he's condescending to humans to let them see a part of himself in a way that we can comprehend. Much like a couple years ago, if you, you might remember, there was this total solar eclipse. And people are trying to look at, and try to see the eclipse, but you can't do it by looking at the sun with your naked eye. You have to find some other way to look at the sun, like looking at it through a, a little pinhole or, or special sunglasses to protect your eyes. Here's a way in which God condescends his glory so that human beings can see who he is. And in this case, John has a vision of the resurrected Christ. This vision inspires awe and inspires great fear in John. And John identifies him as the voice that was speaking to me. John tells us that he is one like a son of man, which tells us that this is indeed Jesus. This is Christ that he's referring to, but not like the Jesus that John knew when he walked upon the earth. Here is Jesus Christ in his glory, in his exalted, majestic splendor and grandeur. And this description will walk through piece by piece to understand the full impact it had upon the Apostle John as he stood there in the Isle of Patmos that Lord's Day. We see in verse 13, this Jesus that John beholds is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus is majestically royal. This is the garb of a king, of a great ruler, of a monarch. Verse 14, the first part of the verse says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Why is John uh, pointing out the fact that this uh, being that he sees, the resurrected Christ, has hair white like wool? This speaks of the wisdom of Jesus Christ. We tend to associate white hair with age and age with wisdom. And that's what's going on here in the culture. But the, the problem for us is that with, with white hair comes not only wisdom but also age. And with age often comes weakness. Here it is actually just the opposite. Here is an ageless wisdom. Here is a wisdom that is not growing weak, but here is a wisdom that is eternally strong. He is eternally wise. In the latter part of verse 14, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks of Christ's omniscience. He knows everything. He is perfectly all-knowing. Verse 15, the first part says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. What does this tell us about him? His feet, that which tramples down his enemies. He's unstoppably victorious. His voice, what about the sound of his voice? It sounded like the roar of many waters. Like the crashing of waves against rocks. Or like the plummeting of water down a cataract in a waterfall. This is a mighty overwhelming roar. He's overwhelmingly authoritative. Verse 16 says that he's holding in his hands seven stars. We realize these seven stars stand for the pastors or the angels of these seven churches. He is completely sovereign. From his mouth they, there came a sharp two-edged sword. What is this saying? It says that he will speak words of judgment. Perfect, accurate, precise judgment. He is perfectly just 
And finally, capping off this description we read in the latter part of verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. He is blindingly glorious. What does this description of John tell us? This description in which Jesus is majestically royal, eternally wise, perfectly all-knowing, unstoppably victorious, overwhelmingly authoritative, completely sovereign, perfectly just, and blindingly glorious. Here is a view of Christ that exalts him above everything else in our imagination. He's king over all. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. Nothing can compare with him. So why, if the, if the answer is not incredibly obvious at this point, why does this vision inspire fear? It's a real view of the risen Christ. Because with this view of Christ, John sees his weakness and sinfulness in light of the majestic, glorious, holy Jesus Christ. Isn't this the same thing that was going on with Isaiah when he sees the Lord high and lifted up? When angels are singing holy, holy, and they're proclaiming the uniqueness of this exalted king. And Isaiah falls down. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Here's the same thing that's going on. Here is a human being recognizing his own weakness, his own frailty, his own inadequacy, his own sinfulness in light of a perfectly majestic, holy God. Of course John is going to fall down as if he's dead. He was seeing his own weakness and sinfulness in light of Christ's power and holiness. And here's what happens. Whenever a sinner is confronted with the presence of God, he realizes that what he needs most, which is purity and life and holiness, is what he doesn't have. That's what happens to you and me when we are confronted with the holiness of God. When it dawns upon our consciousness that there is a God and I'm accountable to him and I'm not him and I'm not worthy of him. It's this feeling of complete, be, completely being shattered. It'd be like standing on a stage in front of thousands of people to give a speech, the most important speech of your life and completely forgetting every line you ever learned. Or like showing up to your dream house and realizing you don't have the key. Or like going to your bank account, ready to make the most important purchase of your life and seeing that it has a negative balance. That's what it feels like to be in the presence of a holy God. That's what causes John's fear. But what is it that removes his fear? So we looked at what causes his fear. That's this vision of the exalted Christ. But what is it that conquers his fear. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Now just let's stop right there and think about this. How is it possible for anyone to simply command someone else to not fear? Those of you who are parents have may, have, may have tried this with your kids at a time they're scared. Don't be afraid. It's okay. It doesn't always work. You can't just boss fear around. 
Have you ever been terrified by something and tried to convince yourself not to be afraid? Oh, I had this experience one time when I was on this lonely beach. At night, I had the grand idea of going out for a run. There was, there was practically no moon and, and no lights, and I decided I'd take my socks and shoes off and run along the beach. I kept hearing these weird sounds behind me. And I kept on telling myself, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know the funny thing is? The more I said, there's nothing to be afraid of, the faster I ran. <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm sprinting. Why am I running so fast? I was convinced there was something behind me. There was nothing behind me. There was just the sound of maybe wind rattling through, through grass or, or the, the sound of waves. But, but the more I tried to convince myself, Jonathan, don't be afraid. Jonathan, don't be afraid. I couldn't boss fear around. It kept chasing me. What are you afraid of? Can you just boss it around? How can anyone tell you, quit being afraid? Unless that person has some sort of authority over what is making you afraid. And when Jesus tells anyone, don't be afraid, his command is backed by divine authority. These are not just mere words that Jesus is trying to use to calm ruffled souls. When Jesus says, fear not, he has every right and every authority to, to, to say that. When Jesus tells a man, don't be afraid, he says it not merely as a mechanism to try to calm him down. He says it because he has conquered that person's fear. This is what Jesus told his disciples when they were on a boat on the lake and that Jesus uh, is, comes across walking on the water and they think they saw a ghost. And these burly fishermen, they scream because they're so terrified. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, it is I. Another incident, these fishermen were in a boat in a storm. Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the ship. And they wake him up. And they say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus stands and rebukes the winds and the waves. And he says to them, Why did you fear? Have you no faith? There are other times when Jesus has told people to not fear. Not only after he was walking in the water, not only after he calmed the sea, but in the Sermon on the Mount, he said to those who listened, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. If God clothes the grass of the field, and if he gives birds, little birds, something to eat, and if not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Heavenly Father knowing, will not the Lord care for you? Fear not, Jesus says. You know, it is completely in line with the character of our loving Lord Jesus Christ to speak to us right in our fear. Whether it's your fear of shame and embarrassment, your fear of humiliation, your fear of loss, something is very near to you that you're afraid that you're going to lose or something that you've desperately wanted, you're afraid you're never going to get it, or even you're afraid of the onslaught of, de onslaught of death for you or for someone that you love, Jesus is the only one with the authority to actually command that fear and say, fear not. How do we know that? Because he goes on. Remember I said, let's pause right up, fear not. But that's not the end of the sentence. He doesn't say, fear not, everything's going to be okay. He says, fear not, I am. 
The ability of Christ to completely dispel our fear, to vanquish our terrors, and to suppress our anxieties is rooted in something true about Him. My friends, this is what we need to do when we are are wrapped up in fear. When we find terror coiled around our hearts, it's to look not at our circumstances, but in the Lord of our circumstances, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, fear not, and the next words out of his mouth have something to do with his own character. That's where our focus needs to be, on the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. What causes fear, interestingly, is actually a vision of Christ. But the thing that conquers fear is more truth about Christ. How can Jesus say, fear not? What does he go on to say about himself? First of all, he says, I am the first and the last. What, is, what does Jesus mean by this? He, here's what he means. I have always existed. You remember when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush? And Moses, and he sent Moses to deliver the people of Israel? And Moses asks God, who am I supposed to say sent me? And God said, tell them, I am has sent you. What did he mean by that? Tell them this. The self-existent one. The self-sustaining one. The one who depends on nothing else for his existence or joy or anything else. The one who is himself the source of everything else. He is the one who has sent you. I am that I am. That is the meaning of that Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. He is the self-sustaining one. Jesus is identifying himself as God here. He's saying, fear not, I am God. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. That's who he is. He says something else about himself, which is really surprising. Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. Now, we weren't expecting that. I died. He experienced death. Hey, wasn't that one of the things we said that people fear the most? And consider this. What kind of death did Jesus experience? The most shameful death imaginable. Jesus' death was a dying in public shame and utter humiliation. We talked about the thing that people fear the most, death and shame, public humiliation, private rejection. Jesus' disciples fled. A man in his inner circle, Peter, like we looked, looked at a couple weeks ago, denied ever knowing him. Judas, one of his own disciples, was the one who for 30 pieces of silver identified him to the Pharisees and betrayed him. And then in the moment of his greatest agony as he hangs there, hands and feet impaled into rough wood, he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Any other time Jesus referred to God, he referred to him as his father. And now he refers to him as God, asking, why have you forsaken me? Here is public shame and humiliation. Here is rejection by the people who should have loved him most. If anyone's life should have ended in applause... If anyone's life should have ended in reward, it should have been the man who never sinned. And yet the sinless Son of God, his life ends in public shame 
and cruel death. And so when this exalted Christ says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is saying, I understand your fears, but I have conquered them. He overcame death. Here is precisely why Jesus has the authority to say, fear not. Here's why Jesus could tell John, down on his, ground, on his, feet, on his face on the ground, as if he's dead. Here's why he could put his hand out to him and say, fear not. Here's how Jesus can put out his hand to you, who this morning are overcome with fear and say, fear not. Because Jesus has conquered the cause of your greatest fear. He faced death and rejection and overcame it. And he's the only one who can say with authority, fear not. My friend, I wonder if you find yourself overcome by fear this morning. I find it very helpful personally to ask myself when I feel afraid, what am I so afraid of? You might learn a lot about yourself by asking yourself that question. What has become so important to me that I fear it so much? It could reveal an idol in your life. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from sin and death, you do have great reason to fear. Jesus himself said, don't fear the one who can kill only the body, but fear the one who's able to cast body and soul into hell. I say without cringing because of the truth of God that there is a coming judgment for everyone. It's appointed a man once to, day, once to die, but after this, the judgment. There's only one way to stand in that time of judgment and to pass unscathed, and that is by having your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins. My friend, if you haven't done that, that is your most urgent need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. In his book, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, uh, he, near the beginning he tells a story of a, an incident in which Jill, one of the main characters, she finds herself in a thick forest and she's terribly thirsty. She's all alone and she's, she's almost dying of thirst. And she hears the sound of water trickling. And to her delight, she sees a stream. It's bright as glass running across the turf. And she walks toward it. But suddenly, as still as a statue lying on this side of her side of the stream, is this enormous lion. It's Aslan. And as she stands there, Aslan says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And Jill is wondering and asks Aslan, would you please go away? And yet Aslan will not move. And he says again, if you're thirsty, you may come and drink. And she says, I dare not come and drink. And Aslan says, then you will die of thirst. And Jill says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion says, 
There is no other stream. When Jesus Christ presents himself to the Apostle John as the one with all authority, full majesty, perfect justice, that is something that inspires great fear in us. But our fear is not conquered by running away from Christ, but in toward him. Why? Because he is the one who conquered our cause for fear. My friend, this is what you must do. Not in running away from Christ is found the solution to your fear, but in running to him, in putting your trust in Christ. And the same holds true for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ. You know, the very, the very thing, the very person who can eliminate all your fears is the one who conquered your fears. And when Christ says, fear not, he is telling you that he could do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. You know, we often talk about in the Bible, the Bible says much about the fear of God. This is not a sort of absence of fear that removes our awe and respect for God. It is a sort of fear that is removed so that we can enjoy the presence of God as we should. Imagine the sort of fear that you'd experience if you found yourself somehow tied to a railroad track and you feel the, the trembling of the rails, a train is coming down the track. You'd be terrified. Imagine the sort of relief and thrill if you were to be scooped up suddenly and placed off the track and on the train. You still have great respect for the power of that engine. But you're not terrified from it anymore. That's the sort of fear of God that we can have. It's not a sort of fear that makes us want to run away from him, but that allows us to enjoy the glory of his presence. My friend, whatever you're afraid of this morning, your fear has been conquered by Christ, and you could overcome it as you find in him the source of all your joy and the solution to all your fear.